Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Volrath Feed. I'm Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef here at the Volrath Company. And with me, as always, our digital media specialist and producer, Justin Pearson. Hey, Justin, how is it? It is fantastic. <laughs> We're here. We have a great show again heading towards us. We um, have Nate with us as well today, so we'll have our Nate's recap, which I really like uh, that segment of our show. I think that is just something that that we do here on the feed that innovative. I, I don't know if anybody else is doing it, but I, I really just think if you're a type of person that's, you know, you listen to our show, but you're doing something else, make sure you listen to Nate's recap. I, it is just such a cool feature. I listen to Nate because I think that's a great way to say it, Nate. He really does have just a good way to sum things up. We have that on the show as well as always, but our guest today, we have um, Laura Lentz, who is the design principal at Culinary Advisors Design. So a designer on the show, which you know, we've had a few designers, but um, I think we, we always say it, we, we're going to have a new designer, new thoughts, new uh, background, so new discussion, I'm sure, about her thoughts on designing for what's going on in the industry right now and trends and some history of design, maybe even. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, each, each one has something unique that they bring to the conversation as well as the consistent things too as we all know the past two years has just been absolute chaos for operators but you know for everybody else for for designers in particular you know they're trying to predict trends which i i wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy right now i mean (laughs) because that's worse than being a weatherman How, how can you really look down try to see in the crystal ball on that one just with the the amount of flux and transition i mean what's going to stick what's gone away and it's it's uh that's why we have them <laughs> or help us to, to yeah. see what's coming and you know it's really about their ability to see things in your space maybe and advise you on what you know what's worked in other areas and um, I, I have, a, you know, when I was going to school, I think I maybe told you this story, Justin, but, uh, my mom and dad remodeled their restaurant about one semester before I took a class called facility planning and my parents didn't use a designer. They let the architect design it, which is an mm. entirely different type of design. Mm-hmm. So they invested money, had a rebuild or a redesign remodel, I guess, of their restaurant. And then I take this design class facilities, planning, and design. And uh, I sure wish I had taken that class before they designed their <laughs> restaurant because you can walk in and I walk in now anyway, I should say, and I see things that, you know, should have been done differently. But Well, yeah. If you're not specifically designing for food service, you look at what makes sense on paper mm-hmm. and it's, it works in a vacuum. It's like, okay, this goes here. Uh, the oven goes over here and there's a lot of other things that you don't think about like traffic and what makes sense to have things where, and it comes back to really having an eye for it. Mm-hmm. And that comes with experience, but also a certain amount of just talent. I think, you know, anybody can, most anybody can learn it, but some people just have a knack for it. And then they build upon that with, with their education and expertise and experience. So, and that's, that's for any trade, you know, that you got to have the eye for it, you know, and, and, and that's something that architects, you know, they've, they've got a knack for what they do. And when it comes to something as, uh, 
specific and, and critical as, as food service design, you know, they, they may or may not have it. And that's putting a lot of right. trust in somebody that you know, is going to dictate how you're going to live your oh. life. Well, right. And if they design great skyscrapers, does that mean they design great restaurants? We, I don't think that's, that's the case, right? So some have expertise in certain areas, some don't. The fact, though, is small mom and pops maybe think they can't afford mm-hmm. to have a designer. But then again, what's your, how are you basing that cost? Is that just the upfront cost? Or mm-hmm. is that the cost of the facility being designed maybe not optimally? And then how many years are you going to be in that business? That's exactly it. You, you ask yourself, can I afford this right now? Uh, I think a better question might be, can I not afford this right. to do mm-hmm. this? You know, because, yeah, you look at the longevity and how long you're going to be in that space. And is this going to drive your kitchen staff insane? You know? <laughs> well, I can tell you it, does, it, it drives you insane if you know there's a better way, but you just can't justify the spend after you've done it wrong. So right. that I can tell you. Right. You know, Justin, at, at Volrath, we we work with designers as well. It's not just in the, the operator and they're oh, yeah. designing their space. We work with them as well as far as some of our equipment that we put into those spaces. We want to make sure that you know we get their input and thoughts on trends and way that people are using it or way they're seeing people wanting to use things. So we have had designers, several of them, into Volrath University for uh consultations, uh, trainings, and get their opinions just to, to hear from them what they're seeing that we as an equipment manufacturer can help build things that they would like to see or use in their spaces. Well, and, and I'm thinking about when when uh, Volrath University was built mm-hmm. and you were a critical component in some of those design steps and you, you're essentially the operator. Your input was highly valued and and that's what a, a really good designer is going to do is they're, they're, they value your input and they're going to work with you step by step along the entire process to make sure that what they come up with is going to meet your needs on a daily basis. Right, right. I'm, I'm really happy with the way VU turned out, Volrath University turned out. Um, we use that space for many different functions and we've got it to the point where it really does accommodate everything very, very well, I feel. I, I know you yeah. do some work in there with video shoots that we do mm-hmm. and we've got multiple meeting spaces, multiple areas for product demos. So it's a pretty, pretty well-designed thought out space, I think. In regards to Volrath University, what are some things that you added your input on that had you not, it would have been less than desirable? Can you think of any instances there where you're like, no, 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 this has got to change? Well, one thing that, um, you know, we, when we design new equipment, we are always looking to make sure that that's featured in our space. So we have an area that we have a live line, a live cook line, and we mm-hmm. have active pieces of equipment on that line. And th- that line also has a stainless steel wall and uh, it's a hood. So you don't really get behind that to add and take things out very easily. So we designed a space behind the wall that was like a, I don't know how to describe it other than a very long closet mm-hmm. behind the cook line. So now if we want to drop in gas or special electrical supply mm. or anything else that we can't didn't think of at the time, we have access to the backside of that wall. That was something that nobody had put in until we thought it through and thought, wait a minute, let's try to put something in there because oh. we've gone down that road before. 
We yeah. went down the road of how do we add things into a space that's closed up and now finished. With this space behind the wall, now we can very easily do that. So that was one thing that when we redesigned the, the Walworth University space, uh, I made sure we put that in to, to have that flexibility yeah. down the road. Yeah, well, yeah, because otherwise it just would have been a finished wall. And on the other side of that, we've got mm -hmm. display vignettes. Two feet of brick. Product. It's a yeah, two-foot yeah. brick wall. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get into that somehow. Yeah, it's it's the it's the little things like that that yeah it looks good on paper. Yeah, everything mm -hmm. fits, but you know having somebody who who has a, a additional insight is is going to be very much worthwhile to at least get their eyeballs on on the plans and the blueprints before before hammers start swinging. <laughs> right, that was one. That was probably the big thing that was a a unique thing that we put in that. Um, our architect hadn't hadn't thought about, but just the way we use it again, the flow, how things, you know, I spent a lot of time just pretending to walk through one doorway and then realizing where the other doorway was. Like if they were too, if they were going to be too close together or not, how, if someone were carrying things like a server or, you know, one of us working in an event, is there enough space to turn the corner and get into the new doorway or you know, how does that all work? So a lot of cardboard cutouts I used, I put down, uh, tape on the floor to make sure I could identify where things might be, just to make sure that the flow mm -hmm. of the space worked well. Mm -hmm. So when you said hammer started flying, we had it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say it works for everything that you need. But yeah, like like you mentioned earlier, I do a, lot, a fair amount of filming in there now. And the space was never designed for that. And had I had my input, the one thing that I would change is raise those ceilings up for ah, me. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, you know more th more than anybody that that's my my constant complaint when we're in yep. there. It's like I wish I had two more feet. <laughs> yes, especially and I know in our back kitchen area where the what is the ceiling now? Eight feet, nine feet. It's nine feet, and your lights go right up against it sometimes. Yeah, but yeah, we work. I, I work with what I got. Work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Justin, what do you say we bring Laura on the show and uh, find out from our expert today some of the questions and her views on design and in the industry and where things are heading? So once again, everyone, if I'd remind you, our guest today, Laura Lenz, who is the design principal at Culinary Advisors Design. Laura, welcome to the Volrath Feed. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. I, I know we're, we're Breaking new ground here with you on a podcast. This is going to be fun. So, yeah. <laughs> first one. Yeah, yeah. And I and I read something on you that um, you were a child of two architects, and and design has been in your life since little on. When did you? When did this this become a, a career for you? When did you know you wanted to do something like this? I know you have a couple other experiences before becoming a designer. Yeah. Um Honestly, not until the day I got a phone call from an old college roommate that said, hey, do you know this is a thing? Uh, I know of this company that's hiring. Are you interested? And I said, really? That's a thing? <laughs> um, so, so I kind of fell into design consulting itself, honestly. I, but it was, a, it was a really natural transition once I figured out that it existed. Before that, I'd been on this path to like become a GM and work every night, every weekend, every mm -hmm. holiday, 
not bother having kids. You know, it's just like the, <laughs> at a certain point, I started to go, I, and I realize I'm exaggerating, but you just kind of go, is this really what's in it for me? And I, at that point, I was the road was diverging away from that path for me mentally and physically. So, um, I just it just happened from from a friend who who knew Pam Eaton, who was at the time at Sceny Little, and uh, kind of fell into it. Mm-hmm. But but from day one, I mean, it has been the best, the coolest profession I've I've could have imagined. Honestly, it's been awesome. Oh, that's good. I mean, sometimes it works out that way. I know you you started in hospitality, and all those experiences they'll kind of roll up, don't they? I mean, everything you've yeah. done, and even your childhood. You listen to your parents talk about architecture and design. It all kind of becomes a part of how you make decisions and experiences you draw on. Yeah. I mean, my so I, I it's kind of a whole family of architects and, and contractors. My my grandfather was the state architect of Virginia um, oh. at one point in time. And and so and you, if if you've read it or heard about it, then you, you I classically say like I grew up. Um, counting ceiling tiles and watching my parents count ceiling tiles to know how big a space was. And they did a spec house when I was, was young growing up. They built the house I lived in, um, as a kid. So it's, uh, the idea of construction and you have a thought in your head and you can actually physically build it, uh, was always sort of a part of, of my life anyway. Cause I'm hmm. blessed for that. Did your parents ever design any food service spaces? Uh, you know, they, what's interesting about them from, from someone who now works with architects primarily, at least in my firm, that is the majority of our business comes from architects versus, uh, whether it's some firms or other types of consulting where like you'd work with the end user more directly. We tend mm-hmm. to be sort of a sub consultant most often to architects. So I'm uh-huh. often, I have to kind of check myself because I'll often be like griping to my parents about, oh, this architect that's asking for this or that or the other. And they're like, okay, <laughs> right over here. But they have really different styles. So like my mother is very much in my mind, an interior designer. And in fact, she, she led that role. Um, she just kind of enjoys the, the, the design and interior side of it. She was, um, worked for, um, I think it's called the architect of the university at Farmville um, college years ago and uh, some other worked at Virginia tech and other things. And in those roles, she was doing more finished selection, uh, kind of like a, an interior architect would do more so where my dad's always kind of been the corn shell guy. Um, and they didn't really ever talk to me about specifically um, any projects at the time that I can recall when I was young, but I have been able to partner with both of them over the years. And that's been kind of cool. So my mom was oh, building wow. a house for uh, someone in our hometown whose house burnt down actually on Christmas Eve. Mm. Oh, and geez. so she had to rebuild her house. And so I designed her kitchen. My mom brought me in on the project. My mom was serving as the architect and she brought me in on the project to design her kitchen for. Her. And it was like one of these super modern, like the glassy cabinets. And we did a super bright orange green or orange color. And uh, that was kind of cool. And then I worked with my dad, um, at Virginia Tech, I've also done like a little coffee bar kind of, it was more like a side, just help him out thing. We did a, a commissary feasibility study together. So it's kind of been cool to be able to work professionally together. 
So what is a core and shell guy? You mentioned that's your dad. Is that the exterior oh, yeah. of the building and the structure? Yeah. So in, okay. in some types of projects, especially projects where the site is, you know, just a, the ground versus a building or maybe a historical building, uh, for, for a number of different decisions, you might decide to split the project into two pieces. I'm kind of generalizing this, but the corn shell, which is the structure, the columns, the physical things, and then the interiors. And normally food service equipment falls into interiors until you need drains and power, and then it becomes corn shell. So in the food service world, we tend to be one of the disciplines that would cross both lines. So you you might go in and say, okay, I'm going to need, you know, 450 amps of 463 power. And then two years later, they call you and be like, okay, so what did that look like again in the kitchen? You know, now we're, now we're ready for you to actually design it. So it's kind of an interesting, mm-hmm. hotels do it a lot. It's a, well, that's what corn shell is. So when you're designing, it sounds like you have your design and then you have function or you have Mm -hmm. the space requirements or the restrictions maybe even of the space. Obviously, I suppose that restriction wins, but if it's designed for function or designed for aesthetics, which way, how how do you balance that? That's interesting, but I do think that I'd start by saying our job, my job as a food service designer is to be the voice of function and flow in for the the kitchen for the employees for whether it's front of house or back of house or whatever the food service situation is like that's that's our primary first and foremost job if if we're not speaking out for that 18 year old chef who's going to have to be turning and burning sandwiches out of a turbo chef nobody's going to be speaking for them so um I always try and tell our folks and, and people I've worked with, you know, that's that's our that's our number one job. Uh, I do think that having had parents who are architects, you know, one of the things that I also encourage <coughs> food service consultants to appreciate is there is something to be said for the alignment is the term we would use of one counter to another to make a space feel more organized. And what's always fascinated me is architects do have an eye. I think that's what makes them good at what they do for making the space feel organized. And as hard as it is for someone sometimes to look at a 2D plan and understand what that's going to be when it's actually built, your your body and your mind can't help but appreciate the organization of spaces, the symmetry maybe, or mm-hmm. the asymmetry. Uh, you, you, I think a lot of it is more subconscious even than it is conscious, but you really do process all that as a human being walking into a space. Uh, it's why you can be so impressed by, you know, a museum exhibit or something. So not to sound preachy, but I, I do think that sometimes I will err on the side of of understanding and wanting to help things uh, ride alongside and buy in with the form of the space. Cause I, I do think function needs to come first. And I think that's our primary role in a project. But I also think that if you ignore form and you just fight for function, you, you don't end up with the best product. Hmm. I, I've learned that recently too, actually my partner, well, one of my partners, Mike, who I just say, cause he's a designer also, he, you'll look at his designs and, and Bill Eaton, who I worked with at Cini, the good designers, the greats out there, you will look at their designs and you will see the 
form of the space and it will flow and it will have the function, but it also is just like, wow, I never would have thought of that. There's always something that's to me still, I'll look at it and go, wow, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of that. So I hope others are seeing that in the projects that I do, but I, I do think that's important, I guess. So how much of the owners or operators input do you seek out and apply to what you're doing? Oh man, I want to say as much as I can. Uh, I think that always has to be censored, uh, especially in different owner and operator relationships. But um, I think the best designs that I have ever done are ones where you got as much uh, feedback and weigh in as you could. And I think sometimes that's a bit of a challenge depending on, like, I think there are different consultants who feel differently about how much input they would want from uh, operators, but I also think that the best project incorporates the knowledge of all of those individuals, and especially yeah. owners. There, there's never, I mean, I can do all the online research about a client or a project starting up that I want to. There's never anything as good as someone saying, this just doesn't quite sell here, you know, and then and then you unpack that. Does it sell here because your equipment's 80 years old and it's falling apart or does it not sell because you're in a certain region of the country where things don't sell that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, they just, they've got to trust you to know what you're right. doing. And, yeah, and, and yeah. I find, yeah, if you give them a little bit of like sense of control and, and, and value and their input is valued, that really helps create a, a sense of buy-in on their end and then really adds to the, the level of trust. 100%. Well, you've got a lot of operator operator experience as well. You draw on that, I'm sure, when you're when you're designing your space. Do you have anything that is kind of your signature? Like you were saying before, you, you see these designers that you look at others mm -hmm. and you hope they see things in your designs. Is there anything that you put in or that you've kind of got your your common thing that you always try to do in your design? Anything unique, maybe, or? Um, yeah, gosh, my head is kind of swimming. I mean, I think yeah, that, I me. think you mentioned something in an article. I, I'll be darned if I can find it now. But I thought there's something you said you hardly ever design. Oh, I know what it is: rack shelving, oh. track oh, shelving. Yeah, yeah. Track, I do yeah. like that. It always just fits well into spaces. Yeah, you're right. Maybe that's me, huh? That's my shtick. <laughs> But it, it is, it's very handy if you work in those systems because you're saving yeah. all that space. Yeah. So it does a thing. It, you know, every, I do think, you're right. I mean, I, when I, it, it's definitely not universal, but if I'm starting out a project and I'm pretty, I'd like to think I'm pretty methodical, right? So I'm always starting out on paper with a list of uh, what, what a project is, what a project is going to need, but there's always like a cook line. I'll have my go-tos in my head. Does the project really need this? Does it need that? So I definitely, I definitely have, um, those things. And I've been saying a lot lately. I don't, I wonder if you guys hear this in, in your other conversations, but man, a piece of equipment that can do more than one thing. <laughs> uh, we were talking about this yep. at, at the MUFAS conference back in January, but I mean, you've got to have equipment. And if someone's R&Ding something, I think it's about what else can I get out of this, you know, blast chiller that can slow cook. Um, the Combi Steamer was probably one of the first products that I think mm -hmm. is, came about mm -hmm. that 
at least for me, it was probably more for where I was in my career path, but was like, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. What else can we get out of this puppy? Hot Frost is one that's sort of popular now. I think, you know, there's just what else can you do with this face? Hot Frost. Yeah. You, you know, like the hot cold shelves and oh. hot frost equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hot yeah. cold shelf. We have hot cold wells. Those mm-hmm. are, you know, multi-purpose for sure. The hot cold well, especially when you're talking about something that's serving throughout all the day parts, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to flip on and off a well from hot to a cold. But now you're talking that's in a heated shelf or frost top as well, one one piece of equipment. So right. multi, multi-use for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That really has been the battle cry for everybody over the past since we've been doing this is like if you've got to have multifunctionality, you know, that yeah. is that is the future of yeah. of food service for sure. You know? And I think I'd like to think the, let me say it this way. The more I think about it, the more I think that the combinations might be a little bit unexpected. But mm. I'm not positive that that's true, but you know, let me say, for example, the six burner range with the oven base, um, that I think was applied in, I don't even want to think about how many a la carte kitchens in every restaurant across this country. But now, and this is also, I'm sure, because of the type of work that we do, which is that we do um, non-commercial work as well as as commercial and retail work. But um we, in fact, we we worked together um, not too long ago on a hospital up in Green Bay together, and um, we were looking at different stations and how do we do a food truck concept, right? So we wanted to get every little thing out of this station within a survey that we possibly could. So I even got a little flack for it, but not too long ago I was thinking about, you know, m- maybe it's then uh, like a... a microwave convection oven under an induction range or or something like that. But I think the combinations now might almost be more different than they would have been before because we're all striving to get more, you know, different cuisines out of the same space than we would have done before Mm -hmm. or, you know, just kind of uber flexible. Yeah. Well, I think really it's people's palates that have changed that are driving a lot of this, these, these uh, necessary changes you know like people's expectations and and they want to be able to get thai or indian or chinese or italian from anywhere and they but they they want good quality stuff too so mm-hmm. it's an expectation that's been driving uh coming back to um kind of your process when you take a look at blueprints or drawings or you walk into a space what is your creative process like are, where do you get like that initial inspiration and what, what are you looking for? Obviously there's mm-hmm. some things like the bullet list of that you have to go down and as far as what their needs are, but what, what's your initial reaction when you first approach a project? Well, the first thing I, I like to try and do is to identify what are my superpowers in this space? Like what are the things that I can turn I mean, ideally, maybe even it's what's a negative that I can turn into a positive. But Mm. what are my superpowers in a space? I mean, I will also say food service in general is always constrained in some form or fashion for our utilities, for where can exhaust get into a building? Where can it get out of a building? Where's the loading dock? Like all these things that that most people are, are readily thinking of. But I also think that 
from a design perspective, windows, natural light, where can we get windows and natural light? I mean, I am working on a hospital project right now where we are consciously affecting the design because of the ability to get more natural light into the kitchen. So, so for example, where I would have had, you know, wall shelf stacked floor to ceiling above a prep table, I'm only going to have one wall shelf because I get like nice clear story or, or transom windows above that. And then we have some clear story spaces, which is dropping columns in, in locations that otherwise oh. wouldn't have been ideal. And maybe normally I wouldn't have wanted them there, but in this case, I'm, I, I mean, I guess I've been thinking about a lot as, as a designer and an individual, but it's like, so if I'm in the kitchen, would I, would I rather have that second wall shelf? I mean, obviously you want to compensate it somehow, uh, compensate for the loss of it somehow, but would I rather have that second wall shelf or would I be able to see a bird flying by and have a little access to natural oh, daylight? I mean, you're putting natural light in kitchens? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Who is doing that these days? Tell me. Yeah, you're really, I mean, you really are thinking about like that 18 year old sandwich kid. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and their I, mental health. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, some of this is obviously being driven by well building and, and um, this project in particular is, is um, seeking a Green Globe certification, which I've been learning a lot about. But, you know, all those things, I think some of, I guess this is me as a designer, right? Like I'm almost putting a higher level of importance on getting windows into a kitchen and I'm, I'm willing and consciously making decisions to adjust a design, you know, from the perfect design. Like, like why can't McDonald's have skylights? How cool would that be? Right. Right over that, that little is, chef yeah. sign, Chick-fil-A. Let's are, do it. Are you doing these things in response to uh, the, the need for everyone to have, um, nice space for their employees to work in, right? Labor is such a hard thing to to get and retain now. Years ago, the kitchen, it was just a workspace. The dish pit was a pit. I mean, it was <laughs> it was not a nice place to be. So are you doing these things in an effort to try to make those facilities be able to retain employees better and yeah. longer? Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I Excellent. Mean, honestly, in my experience, what's driving it right now is about um, – the certification requirements for well building fit well and a number of the screen globes that I mentioned, like a number of, of those types of programs. But but their the heart of their you know mission is to make spaces more inviting. I guess the thing that I'm loving is that where before in a building, for example, the kitchen employees might have been seen as different than the actual inhabitants, you know, if it's a Mm -hmm. a workplace, right? Like, so the employees of the company were valued maybe differently than the the Mm. operators in the kitchen. I think one of the nice things that's come about through that, the certifications and legislation is that it's leveling the playing field. So if you want to say that you're providing a good environment for all employees, it needs to be for all employees. So I've, I've grown some appreciation for that. I think it's awesome. So it's not about the light, the natural light for the light's sake, for lowering energy or or for uh, – it's truly creature comfort. It's a little bit of both. Okay. But, yeah, it's it, – it, you know, in, in, in well building and green globes, it's truly about are you taking good care of those employees? Nice. Huh. 
What a simple and beautiful way to tell somebody that they're valued. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Just here's a little bit of natural light. (laughs) It's true. I love it. It's very true. It is very true. true. Restaurant back a house, a light, a kitchen with a skylight or a um, natural light source. Unique idea. Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. I'm, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot with like people with home working situations lately. So our our company has been home working since I started and I forced, forced a, a renovation of our basement, the space that I'm in right now. And one of the awesome things about it is there's a ton of natural light. There's a ton of windows and we're looking now at moving and I'm starting to realize what a blessing that is. I mean, I think about so many people who probably weren't planning on being in a work from home situation over these last two years. And suddenly we all are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wonder if, if everyone hopefully is able to have some natural light, but I, I certainly will say I've appreciated it a, heck of a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Has that changed some of the jobs you're working on or, or some of the jobs that you're doing are the operators or the business owners changing some of the requirements or the, the thoughts of what they'll be looking for for on-site food service? Yeah, I think it has, I still think right now it has left a lot of unknowns. I think we are certainly starting to see a lot more action and movement and traction on whether we're readying for return to work or whether it's even more so than that. Like we're doing a, a number of master plan projects right now where we're trying to figure out you know, just what a client wants to do down the road. But I, I still think the biggest challenge there is some of the basic questions we used to have, like how many people do you have in your space? How, it, it, are, are, there may be not be completely unknown. There are certainly some knowns, but there are a lot of unknowns, just as many unknowns still. Um, how many, and, and let me also say, there's no real historical data. I, I think it kind of all got, the the reset button got pushed on the historical data. Like when we developed sizing models initially for a project, you know, you, you used to want to take out, okay, what's, what's your employee, your employee population in a building? Let's not, this is a workplace example, obviously. And then you'd account for, you know, vacation time and time off and just general out of the office, right? Like you don't have a hundred percent of your employees on site on a given day. So do you give two weeks of vacation or do you get four weeks of vacation? Well, now I think a huge component of that obviously is how many people are actually required to come into work on a given day. Um, and so it's, it's definitely um, changed the way we are, are working through projects and working with clients. So I, I think I'm still feeling strongly that there's just a lot of unknowns. We're, we've hit the reset button. We're all moving forward. We're working on solutions. Uh, but having the historical data is something we, we just, we, we're without right now. So we're kind of figuring things out. Hmm. Yeah. Rich and I, we were talking and Nate, we were talking the other day about what are some of the things coming out of COVID that are going to stick? What are some mm-hmm. things that have gone by the wayside and, you know, we're just trying to think about like, well, you know, our, our, our food locker is going to be a part of our future or some sort of semi-permanent, um, breath guards over registers, you know, mm-hmm. what, what are some things that you're trending for? Because I, honestly, I feel like, well, there's this whole 
COVID stuff that's been our burden for so long and, and we're coming out on the other side of that, what does the next one look like, you know, and how are we going to be prepared for that in food service? So I remember when, when I was probably, let's say six months into the pandemic, I remember saying in something, it was either talking with someone or, or writing it in a, in a, in an article, but I said that I felt like uh, the pandemic might not be the death of the salad bar, but it would definitely be the death of the menu. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the, we all say, say and have thought lots of different things, right? So I, I still, though, I don't think the salad bar is going to die. I think that's probably still pretty contentious, but I, you also need to know that I'm a big fan of a good salad bar. So, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. both I, I of us here too. Yeah. <laughs> I've insulted so many clients when I go into a big corporate servery and I'm, I'm, they're like, what do you want for lunch? Do you want to try this fantastic burger we have at the grill? And I'm like, no, I want your 30 foot long salad bar, please. And thank you. <laughs> and they're just like, this is what's in it for me. You know, so, so I, I, hopefully I didn't insult too many people, but, um, man, I love a good salad bar. So I'm glad mm -hmm. the salad bar is not dying. I do still think that the menu, I think the menu might die. I definitely think it has changed. And what I mean by that is, so it's now a QR code on a phone instead mm. of being um, a paper menu. I, I think, you know, what I'm hearing about even restaurants, and I think restaurants are going to drive everything. I mean, um, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're portion size in the overall pie is just a lot bigger than anybody else's. So um, I think that menus are, well, let me say it this way. When I hear takeout and to-go ordering being often 30% on an average makeup of sales nowadays, I think that that's big enough that everybody's going to need and want to pay attention to it. I think anybody who's got a kitchen right now is looking at making sure they're designing for the best spaces. We're doing a, a number of projects now where the, the conversations are, where's my dedicated food pickup area? And how do I not make it awkward for diners who are now dining next to paper bags? And how do I not make it awkward for the customer experience of picking up a to-go order being, you know, something that's not walk-in and where am I supposed to go? And where's do I pick mm. up at the bar or whatever? Like there's a dedicated food pickup area or a parking mm -hmm. spot or whatever. But Nonetheless, the point is we're all going more to our phones, I think. So I, I think it's going to, it's going to, it, I think the paper menu is gone. And I think that it, the menus are all going to be um, guided much more by what fits on a screen, the information I want to get from a screen, whether it's maybe we're all going pictures instead of words. You know, we used to, mm. I remember taking classes in college that were about how you write about a menu item and the value of that. You know, you don't just say, um, cooked or baked, you say seared or whatever it might be, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. You want to be as accurate and descriptive and use words that ignite someone's taste buds to get going kind of thing. So yeah. I think I think that's going to change. I yeah. had heard for a while a number of, of consultants talking about decentralized food services being the way of the future. You know, we'd have smaller, multiple groups of food. Um, I don't know that I know exactly how, how any of those individuals feel now, but I will say for me, I think I'll just put it out there. I think there used to be a pretty darned universal design or way of thinking that we went about. And this is, I'm, these comments are actually quite a bit about workplace and non-commercial, but 
you know, a servery and healthcare even. A servery is a servery is a servery was kind of the way we did it. And it maybe got bigger and there were more stations depending on your population or maybe it got smaller. Um, but I think now you have to plan for in the design how many people are going to be in a space, but it, but it's not, it can't be universal. Food halls are still being done by a number of people and a number of people really love them. Right now for us, that's a lot of manufacturing folks who they're, they're kind of looking like serveries in the non-commercial world, but they're um, stations that have identifiable brand concepts that are cool and different and they're not synonymous looking across the, the space. Um, but I also think there's there's plenty of clients that want uh, a more uh, uh, um, articulated space that might be spread out. So instead of bringing everyone together to one space, they are doing, let's say, one at each building in a campus situation or something. So I think hmm. it, it's I think we will still see a lot of the same things that we saw before. But I just don't think that it can be univer as universal as it used to be. I think there will be formulas that work for certain individuals and other formulas that work for other individuals. And so you can't just go into it thinking that you know what it's going to look like on the other side. You've got to really understand their culture. You've got to understand who they are. You've got to understand pretty much all of their HR policies and, and what they're doing and not doing about different spaces and where people can work and where can they eat. I mean, that's a big thing right now. You don't necessarily want to have everybody eating at their desks anymore because of, of um, germs, foodborne illnesses. I had a client who the first conversation we sat down, he's like, I want to get food off of keyboards. That was like hmm. his big mission. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, did you hear about that story? It just came out the other day about that college kid. No. Who ate some, he ate some leftover noodles and rice uh, from restaurant and ended up getting his feet or, or his legs amputated. What? Oh, and part of his fingers. And Ugh. I was within like 24 hours of consuming the food. And I was just like, oh my gosh. You know, well, there's a lot more to it, of course. Like he was short on a uh, meningitis booster or something like that. And that contributed. Yeah. But, but I'm just like, it makes me think about leftovers. And I'm like, mm, I don't think I want to hold on to anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely, the shelf life of a leftover that I've made in my own kitchen is different than the shelf life of a leftover that I've gotten from a restaurant. You can be sure of that. Ah. No offense to the restaurants out there, but their time out in the danger zone has, has likely been longer than when I do it in my kitchen. So yeah, I don't, I don't keep products as long, but I mean, that's a really good point. That's going to be huge. I mean, I think lockers are serving, you You mentioned that, they're serving a huge need right now. I don't think, I think they're here to stay. I don't think they're mm. going to go away. I don't know that we're going to be building automats everywhere. Um, I think we definitely need data. I mean, w the first conversation in, in the first five minutes that always comes up is, well, how many lockers do I need? And I, I, there's, there's starting to be good information about that. But I think, again, it's, it's a client to client basis right now. And I just don't think there's a ton of data about it. Mm. I think the super flexible equipment approach, I've been thinking about that a lot myself. <clears throat> I was just writing a story on it not too long ago. Like we've always, we've been saying for years, we want kitchens to be as flexible as possible. And our designs are designed with flexibility in mind. But, you know, can you push that? Like, could it be nearly universal? Could 
a gas connection for a medium-sized piece of equipment be a gas connection for a medium-sized piece of equipment? So whether I'm plugging in um, and gas might be bad to use in these environmental Since times. Since it's going but, away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So electric, you know, a certain right, amp load, right. you know, right? But can it be can it be universal or how universal can it be um, so that you could, you know, going back to that whole idea of how much can I get out of a little parking space, right? Like. Well, we, we always would talk about that at the Volrath company with countertop equipment. Do you see countertop equipment as filling that that kind of plug-and-play need where maybe if it's easy enough, it's on a cart, you can pick, or then I guess it's not countertop anymore. But if you can switch out pieces of equipment readily, easily, because you've got a connection in the back that can be quick disconnects or gas or mm-hmm. same amp draw or some other kind of electrical uh, connection point, does that fit the need of, of, of being flexible in and and one space maybe being used for multiple ways? Or do you still want one piece of equipment that I suppose that's ideal, right? One piece of equipment that can do multiple things like an oven can also turn into a refrigerator, I guess, is what we were kind of talking about before, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's the perfect, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the ideal. I think there could even be simpler versions of it. Like, um, and one th- example that's come into my mind is, um, not too long ago on the same, the project I was talking about that we worked on it in Green Bay with, with Volrath, we used, um, your induction, um, kind of modular induction hub, which mm-hmm. I didn't even realize was a thing. And, I will say though, my learning lesson there, um, which not to, not to give you guys a hard time, but my learning lesson there was that I think the footprint, we, we kind of, we, not last minute, but it wasn't until we were working with you to develop the counters and the shop drawings. And then I learned about this. Um, it was a, the three hob induction unit. And then you had a more, a portable like plug and play. And I was like, Oh, that's fantastic. And if they're doing the counters, well, heck yeah, let's, let's go ahead and use their, uh, unit. So we were switching it out, uh, from, I think what I had just self fabricated or custom fabricated before using just drop in induction units. So it's, it was a great solution. The footprint was a couple inches wider. And I, I'm obviously there's purpose to that on, on the, the engineering and construction side of things, but the footprint was a couple inches wider. So we had to widen the whole opening, which, which was fine. But, you know, then I have one piece of equipment that's 36 inches and it looks like a little baby in there. And then we've got a 48 inch and then we had a 51 inch. And so I'm going, well, at least couldn't we get them all the same or um, maybe even some, okay, here's some, here's what's been going through my head. Like, could it be modular? We always are, are dealing with plug and play designs, right? And then mm-hmm. we always talk about how you got to have the parking for all the other equipment that wants to go into yeah. this. So I'm like, why can't you have... It would almost be like the countertop portable version that's sitting up on top. But why can't I have it where I can just pull it off or slide it out or something and put it down underneath and then exchange it, you know, with the with the walk version and pull that Mm. out and put that on top. And so at least it's the same footprint, even if I'm still physically having to move things, Mm -hmm. but it would be the same footprint to do those different things. So maybe that's kind of like, um, is it uh, Gaggenau and Wolf, some of the residential models where they have the drop-ins that can be, you know, you get four drop-ins side by side, but one's a fryer, one's a grill plate, one's, mm-hmm. you know, whatnot, that kind of idea. Like, can it, can it be? And so I think that's similar to what you're talking about with the countertop equipment, but maybe trying to push it to that, you know, modular right. level. 
I mean, right. these are just ideas, right? Like, yeah, no, buy like it, we, look, know, yeah. we look at a counter space, and if it's 24 inches wide, we can put our 24 inch electric oven in there, and then it, that oven isn't needed. We pull the oven out, we can slide a induction range or a panini machine or a grill or a right. induction wok or something else on that counter space. That's kind of how we've always looked at it, but you've taken it a step further and look at it as. Where's the parking space? Where's the the convenient swap in and out function of it versus just lifting it off the counter? So that mm-hmm. piece that you're talking mm-hmm. about, you called it the induction hub. Was it the uh, downdraft vent where the induction was incorporated with the fire suppression? What was the system you're talking about with the induction hub? No, actually, we had that. Um, we had a hood above it. It okay. was just maybe I used the wrong term by saying hub. I'm I mean hub like because there's three induction units in a mobile in a single mobile counter. Okay, so I mean hub Drop in more wells. like business. <laughs> I yeah, see. Yeah. Okay, okay. Oh no, they were they were induction units. Maybe they fabric. Maybe you fabricated it for me, and I didn't even realize it. I thought it was bio. That, I don't know. Hmm. That's that sounds like custom product, right? Yeah. Just trying to make sure we mm. capture the right thing. Well, it looked thing. good, and I liked it. Let me tell you that. Everybody <laughs> should go get one. <laughs> the client loved it, too. <laughs> Steven Reinders was our client there, and he was awesome. He was the best one to work with. Do you know his, the most popular food item on his room service menu in his hospital was a pan-seared walleye. The I most mean, granted, you're in Green Bay. but Popular? Hmm. When yeah. was pan-seared walleye? An option at a hospital? Well, and the number <laughs> one. An number option, one. much less the most ordered item. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, it is It is northeastern Wisconsin, so, I mean, it, it's no surprise that, that walleye is a fan favorite there, but well, just to have it as an option is like, okay, I, I think I need to go break a leg or something. When, when they get so <laughs> healthy, deep fry it. And then put some cheese curds on the plate. Now you got a Wisconsin meal. It's a hospital. Oh, it's that's hospital. right. It's okay. a hospital. Forget the walleye then. Just the cheese curds. I will say, I will say we did have a fryer in the servery. There is a fryer, and that was for cheese curds. Yeah. Purely. It, exclusively yep. for – when my wife, uh, when we had her son, yeah, there was an extensive deep fried menu, and she – she really took advantage of that. Cheese curds, onion rings, everything. Yeah, this is up in Green Bay. In moderation, it's <laughs> so, all good. You've got to. Yeah, it's all good. So yeah, we, yeah. we've talked a lot Hospital about- Hospital or not. <laughs> we've talked a lot about, I think, bigger commercial spaces where there's, um, you know, maybe a, a sizable budget. But do you have any advice for the small mom and pops that may not think they can afford a designer or- any of those operations of some things that they can do when going through a new design of their space or a new remodel of their space? There is no doubt that the um, typical scope of services that we provide like has a lot of uh, service built into the coordination time and the effort put forth towards working with a full design team. But to to on what you said, and like we do, we do some uh, nonprofit work with a group called the Neighborhood Design Center. And so I guess I kind of draw on the way they do things as if I were in the mom and pop shoes, what would I do? We as a part of that, that our our work effort was with that organization and then ourselves, I all the time encourage clients to consider limited scope services. You know, if you can't, if you can't do everything or have a, bring in a consultant to, to be there at the beginning and the end, maybe consider other options like 
have a consultant, like I've done a number of projects where it's, it's a four hour, six hour effort. You know, it, some of them times, even with architects, uh, a lot of times with end users come into our office, sit down with us or come into our restaurant, sit down with us, look at the space, tell us what you think. Sometimes it might even be sketch something out. Sometimes it might even be sketch something out and give us some cut sheets, lay everything out for us so that, so that you're not paying a consultant to develop all the plans and work through everything, but you're getting the value of the knowledge of that consultant, right? So you still have to bear the coordination on your own. You still got to do a lot of figuring, but you can get the benefit of the knowledge of a consultant who has that experience and then take it, take it from there to whether you're going to a contractor to kind of, uh, it's like our version of design build, right? Or whether you're um, going to manage it on your, your own. But I think, I think there's a lot of value in that. I think there are things that some tricks, and I'm just realizing we were talking about that early and I don't think I ever answered that question, but there's some tricks or some common things that consultants will do. Um, sometimes it's just random pieces of equipment, like like super compacted. I really like how these guys thought up this or that or the other that, that I think sometimes we can add value to uh, a mom and pop type of situation who um, doesn't necessarily have all the funds to go all the way, but would their restaurant plan be better if they spent, you know, some money, some, some hourly time with a consultant to, to look at solutions. So I, I've always thought that that appealed to me and maybe the consultants out there in the world would be like, why are you telling people that? But <laughs> that's well, what yeah, I would do. I, <laughs> so a good design firm or a good food service designer, their services should be modular and you can pick them up and use them however you need them. Oh yeah. We do a la carte platters, poo poo yeah. platters of choices all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We do it a lot too. When we partner with other Type other like food service consultants, obviously, is what I'm talking about. But like, I've done a, co- a number of partnerships, and actually, they're pretty popular right now with as many unknowns and master plans and feasibility studies as people have done. So, like, um, I'll, I've partnered a lot with um, Karen Malady, Russ Benson, Tom Newcomb, Bernadette Ventura, like you name it. But a number of the consultants that are out there and just gone and said, you know. I kind of think this client needs it. They may not know they need it. They have no idea how much it costs, but mm. let me put the scope of services in here. Or how about, you know, they're asking for this and and let's team up together and provide something. But a lot of times your approach there might be more of uh, an a la carte menu because you can then give them the option and the choice, I guess, of, of choosing it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd like to always think that people could do everything, but money is money is money. That's true. Yeah. Especially for the small operators, it's, it's tough, oh, yeah. you know, but they've, I think that in the long run, you know, it's always that is the cost as Justin mentioned, I think in the front of the show, is it, is it the cost up front or is it, can you afford not to do it for the many years that you're going to be in that facility and working there and, and have it done right. Um, mm-hmm. I was telling a story on the front end of the show where my parents remodeled their restaurant one semester before I took a class in school called facility planning and design. Whereas if I would have taken that class and I think they relied on their architect to be their designer, there's some Mm -hmm. things that just shouldn't work. Now my parents have been in business 40 plus years. It works, but it doesn't work as well as it could with some little design tweaks and some traffic Mm -hmm. flows in their case, which would have been greatly improved. But 
the ergonomics of it, I think is huge that when you said that the thing it made me think of is the bar top, like the, the perfect dimension to a bar top. And there's probably a slight variance if you talk to a food service consultant, but the one I've always worked with is a 24 inch bar top. And I'm telling you, if you get to a 27 inch bar top or a 28 inch bar top, it, it is not nearly as friendly and you can't make drinks as fast and you don't make as much money. I think there's a lot of truth in hmm. that science. The wow. dimension of the bar top. There you have it. <laughs> I'm going to take a tape measure out and I'll be measuring every yeah, bar that I go to. Yeah, see what it is. But you're right. I've sat at some that are very, very deep and that bartender is mm -hmm. a good long ways away from you. It seems funny. It seems weird, right? It doesn't fit. They talked about the aesthetics of walking into a space. Is it balanced? Is it symmetrical? Mm -hmm. There's subconscious things we pick up on that we feel one way or, or another by entering a space. There is a bar in the Nashville airport. Well, I, I, it might still be there. It's been a while. It's been a minute since I went to Nashville. I think it was FCSI <laughs> in April of some year. But um, <laughs> there's a bar in the airport that is the bar top is shaped like a guitar and, you know, the, the guitar neck. And uh, there is also a, I believe it was a golf um, putter that is readily available for trying to get the drinks at the end of the bar top. And I'm sure, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cool thought on how to do a bar. So I'm not yeah. knocking it, but I'm just saying, I'm sure that there could have been a few more conversations in making the design work so that you wouldn't always be obligated to have a golf putter available to get a drink. <laughs> To give a drink, to get a drink. Yeah. To get a drink. <laughs> In today's uh, time where you're with a client, you've got some experience behind you. You're, you're growing up again with your family and so forth. At what point do you, do you trust your gut sometimes? Do you just say, you know what, I really feel like this is the way to go? And where, where does it, do, do you do that now? Or are you still a little leery? Do you still double check things? Or do you feel like you've got enough in you now that you can go with your gut? So my partner, he can go with his gut, hands down, question, no question. Um, I am definitely leaning on my gut a lot of the time. I am definitely still someone who, I just like the numbers anyway. I, I, I was born with like a planner in my hands. I don't even know what to tell you, but <laughs> back to our moving our house, my poor husband, he says, you know, so I'm kind of thinking about moving and I'm like, all right, pod showing up tomorrow. <laughs> the poor guy. The poor guy. Um, so I, um, I, I definitely still like to use the data. I, I will also say I'm a big, and when I say data, I mean like sizing models and how big of a space do you need? And I'm a big person in using data to tell a story, to help a client understand. I think the way food service design happened also when it was, when it was in its infancy as a, as a profession, I think there was a lot more gut using. I think now that people know so much more about food, I think maybe that's why I'm a little less likely to do it because I think people do want to know, well, how do I do this or how can I do that or can I get food service into this space or that space? So I tend to use data a lot more about telling the story for a client so that they can understand why you can do this or you can't do this or this is the stronger um, solution because it has more or less square footage, even though it doesn't look like it, you're getting twice as much space. I mean, that does happen. Mm. So it, it tends to start with the gut where I use my gut the most heavily though, is like if you're, um, concepting, uh, or test fitting out a, a, a blank space, you know, new restaurant, here's your space, go figure it out. 
I will test fit. I mean, I'm usually like still coming up with eight different uh, ideas and then kind of scratching them off. Yeah, this doesn't work. Yeah, this doesn't work. Yeah, this doesn't work. I think the gut comes in handy when it's like, okay, I'm going to stop. I don't exactly know how this would work out and I don't know why this is better or worse, but I know it's not as good. So I'm going to stop paying attention to it and, you know, go to the, go to mm-hmm. the next one. So I think that's where, where gut for me comes, comes in handy. I also find I use it a lot for clients. So sometimes just going, you know, if, if there's an idea that comes up in a call on the fly or something, and I, I, I know I've said a number of times, like, I don't know that I can tell you exactly why that doesn't work as well, but I know it doesn't work as well. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it does work. I don't know. Well, you you (laughs) must have a a, a good sense of it all because I I just wanted to say congratulations, by the way, on your 2020 Young Lion Award. Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah. FDR magazine, right? So Yeah, thank you. That's that's quite a nice honor. What what all is incorporated with that award? I mean, you get to be honored at a banquet or something or Honestly, I don't even I haven't heard anything. You know, I think that hit right as the pandemic oh, was sort right. of starting. So it kind of ended up being one of those things that, you know, it's like the KI award winners of 2020 also were like kind of, oh, yeah, that was a thing. But we were we were going <laughs> to have a big banquet at the NRA show okay. and it was going to be a thing. And then uh, we didn't end up being able to have it. So, okay. um, so it might just have been, you know, a little silent, a little silent thunder. Although, thank you for bringing it well, up. Because no, now, now everybody will know. Yeah, but no, certainly recognition, <laughs> recognition for what you do and what you've done. The way you know you you um, you go about your day and your job, so it's 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 a good validation for what you've done. So. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. Appreciate it. No, pleasure. All right. Well, Laura, listen, we have uh, spent a lot of time here with you today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate uh, your time with us today, and I know our guests and our listeners are going to appreciate hearing your insights and stories. And you're a great guest. Thank you again for for coming on the show with us today. You know, one of the things we always like to get from our guests is um, at some point in your career, your life, there's been something someone said or a quote you've read or something else that you've found that inspires you, guides you. Do you have anything like that that you could share with our listeners? I do. Totally. My, um, it's something, uh, I had an uncle who has, has passed away for a number of years now. Um, but he always said, uh, every day is a gift. And we, my, my dad says it all the time and our, our whole family, um, uh, really tries to live by it. But, you know, whether it's, it's get out and make the most of every day, but every day that you have is, is a gift that you've gotten. So, um, use it, keep it precious, uh, whether it's family, whatever it is. I mean, I'm saying this in Maryland at the end of winter when I'm like, can't wait for spring and tulips and bulbs to start coming up, but, uh, if there's anything I've thought about too in the last two years, but, but we've been saying that for a long time in our family and, and it still rings true for me. Every day is a gift. Oh, for sure. For mm. Sure. Just to, if you stop and think about it, just to appreciate every single day you've got, make yeah. it work. Yep. Very good. Exactly. Great words of advice there. Laura, again, thanks again for everything. Appreciate your time. Have a good rest of your week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you all. all. Bye-bye. Bye everybody. <laughs> Justin, well, that was fun. She's a she was a great guest. A lot of fun with her, and she's one of those guests you 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 know it's fun to have when they just talk, right? Truly, I, I enjoy listening, and when they can take a question or a topic and just run with it, and mm-hmm. 
you know, there's just so much information coming out from which is a perfect segue to our, the ending of our show. Right. And well, you, you almost did it. You almost uh, went right there, and I almost did. But I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it back over to you. That's that's oh. that's kind of your gig here. No, so I'll let I, you. I, you could do uh, it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll take it then. I'll take it then. All right. That's a perfect segue into our next section where we have Nate's recap, and Nate does such a wonderful job of taking all the highlights and the best parts of the show and really boiling it down, disseminating it to a couple of take-home messages. So, Nate, without further ado, if you would like to wrap this one up for it, we'd greatly appreciate it. Well, Justin, it's quite an honor to be read in by you. So thank you. Thank you for the intro. That was, that was, a, that was a nice change of pace there. The, the honor is truly all mine. <laughs> <laughs> we always tell everyone when we take a give a peek behind the curtain – that we all do truly enjoy doing this and we have a lot of fun doing this. And we like it for a lot of us, even when we've got those busy days, this is genuinely a highlight of it for us when we do get to record these shows. But even the bit of like chuckling we're doing on air right now and the fun we're having and changing it up when, when Laura joined the show, the, the energy instantly went up. And that's just, I love people who have that ability, who have that contagious energy. And then when they have knowledge to go with it, it's just it's those are such enjoyable conversations to to listen to and to be part of. And I think that my biggest takeaway is knowing knowing regardless of who you are as an operator, the owner of a mom and pop shop, whether you're whether you're part of a larger operation, whatever the case may be, to have someone to make sure you're working with a designer like Laura, who is really an advocate for you who's a tool for you, who's a resource for you, who is keeping you in mind through all of these decisions while lending expertise. It's not just someone to spout off a bunch of facts and show you a bunch of shiny things you could do and ways you could spend a lot of money. A good partnership, what I learned from this interview, a good partnership with a designer is working with someone who is able to be your voice in conversations where they may have a little more expertise than you do or may see something with their fresh set of eyes in a different way than you see it. And I think Laura does an excellent job of that with her clients and even just some of the things she mentioned, even like the natural lighting that came to mind and just like, hey, it just, it'd be a lot more pleasant to work here. <laughs> it just, it makes it feel more inhabitable. It makes it feel like a more gentle space. Having an eye for things like that too, not just, hey, here's the most expensive uh, countertop you could put in, or here's the nicest piece of equipment we could buy you that would fit your need. It's, it's a, per a good designer is a person that goes that extra step about, hey, this would make this a more inhabitable space. Hey, it's form and function. And I, I think Laura's energy and her expertise and knowledge is just a really awesome combination and just a great conversation overall. Today's episode, you're right, was a lot of fun. And for me, it's it's just fun to sit and listen to her because I know you're doing the recap, so I'm not worrying about taking a bunch of notes on how to recap <laughs> the show. So it just makes it really enjoyable. And, and what a great show it was. Great job, everybody. So to wrap it up, though, Justin, any last thoughts from you today? Yes, as always, I would like to remind everyone to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. And while you're at it, you could also take a little bit of time out of your day and, and share what we have going on here with a friend, family, coworker, anybody that you think might gain some value from the conversations that we have here. That's right. And um, everyone, as always, if you've got something, please let us know. If you want us to talk about a topic on the show or you've got a guest in mind, give, reach out. Let us know what you're thinking. Valrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. Love to hear from you. My quote today to close out the show is always, um, 
you know, even thinking a little bit about Laura's quote, um, every day is, is a gift. And with my dad, it was always about just doing his restaurant. He, he didn't want it to be about the money. It was just a place that he wanted people could come in, relax, enjoy a good meal and have fun. It was kind of just enjoying their day, right? Every day is a gift. Just keep that in mind, everybody. I think we'd all do well just to appreciate what we've got. Till next time, take care. <laughs>